This is the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark, bringing you the latest research on autism spectrum disorders. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Explained and visit our website at www.autismexplained.org. I'm here today with Dr. David Evans. Dr. Evans is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Bucknell University. He's also the director of Developmental Neuropsychology Lab at the Geisner Bucknell Autism and Developmental Medicine Institute, both in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we want you to give us a little bit of your background for sort of how you got into autism. So I, I know that you did your PhD at Boston University and then subsequently did a postdoc at Yale, but maybe you can walk us through a little bit. What were your interests scientifically as you were doing your PhD and postdoc, and how did you sort of get into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so actually, my interest started um, quite a bit before my PhD work. So uh, after my undergrad, I worked as a research assistant in a uh, in the psychology department at Yale. This was in the mid '80s um, in a in a lab of uh, Dr. Edward Ziegler and Robert Hodap. Um, Ed Ziegler's probably best known for his work starting Project Head Start and uh, has a tremendously vast repertoire of, of scientific interests. But one of the things that, that um, I worked on with him and with Bob Hodap was the development of children with intellectual disabilities. Um, and, and Ed's work really stems from a long theoretical tradition um, of people not drawing sharp boundaries between normal development and atypical development. So, so Ed's work and our work, my work with him, um, I kind of looked at the development and the, the trajectories of development of, of the acquisition of skills and the psychological development of kids with intellectual disabilities, which then we called mental retardation. Um, and, and so that work really got me interested in, in the interface between typical and atypical development. Um, and one of the things, one of the lessons I learned from Ed is, you know, you know, the def one of the definitions of an intellectual disability is having an IQ below 70. The average IQ in the general population is 100. Um, but Ed kind of taught me to um, focus less on that and more on the, the nature of development. In other words, a child with a, an IQ of 72 is not really a whole lot different from a child with an IQ of 68. And yet, one of them, the child with an IQ of 68, meets a, the criterion for an intellectual disability. The one with a 72 might not. Um, and, and that kind of um, appreciation for the sort of gray area in between normality and pathology uh, really got me excited. And I, I have found it a really useful way of thinking about other disorders, in particular autism. Um, yeah, and so as we'll, we'll talk about, this has become sort of a, a main theme throughout your, your work, basically, and that's uh, how much are we basically drawing arbitrary distinctions that are really just a continuum, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And so uh, when you were doing this work, it was initially on, on more specifically intellectual disability, uh, just out of curiosity, because it's interesting uh, for people to kind of hear the evolution of things. At the time you were originally doing your PhD work, how, how much would you say there was an interest among researchers in autism specifically as compared to just neurodevelopment or sort of general neurodevelopmental disabilities? You know, there were, there were some people were certainly 
studying autism, but it wasn't even close to the magnitude these days. Um, so when I was in grad school, you know, there were there were no autism centers for excellence, and there's probably a dozen of them around the country right now. Um, so there's really been an explosion in um, in labs and in scientific interest in understanding the nature of autism. Uh, it's it's a fascinating disorder, and if you look at it kind of objectively, um, it obviously has a devastating impact on families and individuals with autism. Um, but yeah, the the number of labs is just it's it's just been a, a an exponential increase. Um, and partly, I think, because of the perception of the increase in the diagnoses of autism. That's really engendered a lot of interest, um, certainly a lot of financial backing from the, the federal government for funds to, to help understand and study and treat autism. So it's changed dramatically from when I was in grad school. Right, right. So uh, along those lines, sort of, tell us a little bit, because you're at a kind of interesting place. So uh, Geisinger Health System and Bucknell have this new Autism and Developmental Medicine Institute that uh, really has gotten very famous very quick in the, in autism research. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be, how you kind of uh, fit in there, and what the overall kind of goals of the institute are. Yeah, it's a great question. So this is... Um, this is really the realization of, of a dream in a way of, of combining um, research with clinical treatment. Um, so this is something that Geisinger is actually committed to for in, in a variety of domains, not just autism, but the, the recent development has been the creation of the Autism Center. Um, when I first came to Bucknell in the late 90s, um, I, I reached out to um, colleagues of mine who were at Geisinger, two neurodevelopmental pediatricians, um, Dr. Scott Myers and Dr. Tom Chowman. And we had, we tried several times to collaborate. It was dif- difficult in a way because their clinical schedule was so deep and, and heavy and my teaching schedule was, was pretty heavy. Um, and, and so it took a while to really get this off the ground. Two years ago, um, there was a bit of a windfall when David Ledbetter, um, David's a, um, a psychologist by training, but a, a, um, a geneticist. Um, and a really uh, brilliant geneticist who has um, helped us understand um, the genetic nature of all sorts of neurodevelopmental disorders. David was actually hired here at Geisinger to be the chief scientific officer. So his job, in a sense, was to take uh, the first-rate clinical care that Geisinger's long been known for and promote translational research. And by translational research, I mean the kind of research that really um, can be immediately translated into clinical intervention and treatment. So it's not just basic science for the sake of knowledge. It's science for the sake of, of helping and understanding disorders. And so... So the difference being, like, for instance, um, what would be considered basic science research is someone making a mouse model maybe of one um, gene syndrome that has autism a component and then studying that, and and something like that would take years before anything could be really kind of realized with that. And what you're saying is you guys are actually working with human patients, sort of developing clinical models or, or diagnostic tests. That's right. That's right. Although I have to say the, the mouse model of, of neurodevelopmental disorders is really an important model. So so if you can create a mouse model of, of a human neurodevelopmental disorder and you can understand it, that goes an awful long way toward treatment. So many aspects, in fact, of mouse model work, while people may not appreciate it, are really key aspects of translational research. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. Along those lines, what, what, what is your opinion? I mean, so th this is a big uh, debate in sort of the autism research community, and we've had people on this show even kind of on both sides of the party line, I guess, as to how valuable autism mouse models are. And, and sort of the debate is always, well, is a mouse uh, able to exhibit the types of complex behaviors that autism is thought to be a problem with. And, and I would be curious to know, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So there have been several papers recently, a really high-profile paper in the journal called Cell, which is a really um, distinguished journal. And they use mouse models of, of autism-like behaviors. And so generally, as, as I'm sure you and the listeners know, autism is defined by deficits in social and communication, and language and by excesses in repetitive behaviors and restricted interests. Obviously, we're not going to develop a mouse model of, of restricted interests. You know, we don't really know what a mouse is thinking about, but, but we can create experimental, uh, mouse models that, that breeds a mouse that might be, uh, that might engage in inappropriate social behavior, um, that doesn't do the kind of, uh, social exploring that a typical mouse does. And a mouse that may, that almost always in these autism mouse models has repetitive behavior. So they might be um, excessive grooming. So some degree of grooming is normal, um, but, but excessive licking until the, the, you know, the, their hair falls out is, is a pathological variant of repetitive behavior. And so you're right that there is a bit of a leap of faith that well, that excessive grooming is is analogous to a child, say, that is engaging in repetitive rocking or or other repetitive body movements, and that you know having a mouse that doesn't explore or smell a strange uh, another strange mouse is the same as a child who's socially withdrawn. But these still are powerful models. I mean, ultimately, you can you can do a kind of research with those animal models that you've just that we wouldn't be able to do with humans. Well also the the neural architecture, even though we're <laughs> completely different species, we're related and and the the neural architecture is not all that different. There are fundamental parts of the of the mouse brain that have analogous regions in the human brain. And so we can also study you know genetics and brain development and behavior in a mouse that really could go a long way toward understanding uh, human behavior. Also, it, recently there was a um, work with a mouse model of fragile X syndrome. So fragile X is an inherited form of intellectual disability. In fact, it's the most common inherited form of intellectual disability. Um, it involves a, a single gene mutation. And studies of mouse models have, have produced basically fragile X mice that exhibit many of the features, the behavioral features and cognitive features in autism spectrum disorders. What's interesting about this is that that has led to treatment, to pharmacological treatment that's now being done on humans. And in fact, it seems that some of that uh, work has rescued some of the cognitive and behavioral deficits that you see in autism in even adults, human adults with fragile X syndrome. So this is a really exciting way of, of looking at this problem and, and, and again, blending science and clinical intervention. It's a really important way of looking at this issue.
I agree. It is. It's very interesting, too. So uh, you started to talk about this, and it sort of dovetails into some of your more recent work and, and some of the, the basis of a lot of the work that you've done personally in your lab. Um, and you were, when you were talking about is a repetitive behavior sort of on a continuum. And so uh, maybe you can describe for us a little bit some of the recent work you've done with regards to uh, that kind of work where you've looked both genetically and clinically to try and define um, are the symptoms that we're seeing in kids who are diagnosed with autism, how do we know when that requires a diagnosis and how do we know when that is basically just a, a variation of normal? That's it's really that's the million-dollar question. It's a great question and something that uh, I get excited thinking about. So, so a lot of my work in the past 15 years um, has looked at, as you said, the nature of repetitive behavior. And my work as a postdoctoral fellow at Yale in the uh, lab working with Jim Lechman, who's a pediatrician and a brilliant physician. And so we, we undertook a fairly large-scale study looking at how common repetitive behaviors were in the general population. And what we found is that uh, parents will report about 80% of kids who were between the ages of two and four engage in a quite a large degree um, of repetitive behavior and restricted interests. Um, because these are normal, otherwise, um, they might go unnoticed. So, for example, any parent of a two- or three-year-old is probably all too familiar with the habits that a two- and three-year-old kind of rigidly sticks to or adheres to. So, for example, like a, a bedtime ritual. You know, um, a two-year-old or three-year-old might have a really elaborate routine uh, where they're lining up their, you know, teddy bears or dolls and, uh, you know, the, the parents are, will read a book to them, but the child wants the, the same book to be read night after night. Uh, kids that age will watch a video, the same video over and over and over. They have really strong preferences, likes and dislikes for certain kinds of food. My mom said I used to line up uh, my my cars and it had to be perfectly ordered, my toy cars, in front of our fireplace. Otherwise, I wouldn't leave the room. There you go. That's a perfect example. And honestly, if you were a child who was a little bit a little bit delayed in, in language, for example, what someone would look to, what the parent would look to, is probably you know, go to the Internet first and, and Google, you know, autism or, or, you know, language development or whatever – and they'd find out that, yeah, hmm, delayed language is a sign of autism, but so is repetitive behavior and restricted interests and, and things like lining up objects like that. And they would be able to say, your parent would have been able to say, oh, my goodness, my child has autism because you might have been delayed with language development, but every two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old even is going to have some repetitive behavior like that that allows a parent to say, oh, my gosh, the repetitive behavior symptoms are there, even when those repetitive behaviors in that context are totally normal. Right. And so what a lot of your work has tried to do then is tease apart what is normal and what is sort of when does that become abnormal, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So walk us through when you, when you sort of wanted decided years ago this is what you want to study. I mean, how would a scientist try and study something like that? Yeah, it's a good question again. We started off with a very simple <laughs> a very simple research approach which is basically uh developing a survey. So we created something called the childhood routines inventory. 
and we mailed this inventory. It's just 19 questions, um, you know, across a five-point scale from, like, very untrue to very true with a range of these repetitive behaviors. So the first thing we did before we, uh, you know, went to invest in <laughs> genetic or, or neuroimaging tools is just find out what parents would report on. And so we sent this to about 3,500 families who were living in New Haven, Connecticut. We got names from town records and birth announcements, and we got responses from a high proportion of them. And so we were able to sort of look cross-sectionally across the ages to see the degree to which a parent of a two- or three- or four-year-old would report that these behaviors exist versus a five- or six- or seven-year-old. So we were able to kind of get a little bit of a, an initial taste or a flavor for how common these behaviors are and and for how they change over time in children, whether children grow out of them. So what you're saying basically is the first first step sort of you took was to try and just survey kind of what is the range of normal is what you guys were essentially trying to do. That's That's exactly right. That's exactly right, because you can't define abnormal unless you can define normal. It's impossible to say that a, a child's development is, is, is atypical unless you have a really solid sense of what is typical. And so we applied that logic just to understanding repetitive behaviors. And again, initially, it was just coming up with, with questions that reflected the kinds of behaviors we were interested in. We've since moved beyond that. So we've since uh, engaged in other kinds of research methods and, and, and technology like um, EEG and functional or fMRI and structural MRI, where we can look at, at the brain structure and functions and map that out on the development of the child's repetitive behavior. So we can understand the link between the brain and behavior in typical children and also in children with autism. All right, well, let's talk about some of that. So basically what you were able to do was to define sort of a range of normal, and then presumably you were able to find some children who were outside of that range, right? That's exactly right. And then from there, you were able to then apply these new other techniques that were that you're referring to, EEG, MRI, and then study specific components of basically the brain or brain development in sort of what you had determined to be normal kids and kids with sort of abnormal repetitive behaviors, right? That's correct. So why don't we talk about some uh, some of the more interesting things in your mind that you've done. So you mentioned EEG, MRI. So these are imaging techniques, basically, and looking at brain activity patterns. Why don't you discuss a little bit about some of your findings with regard to that? Sure, sure. So EEG is, uh, stands for electroencephalogram, and this is a, a device that's actually been around for, for many, many years. It's, it's kind of the oldest neuroimaging tool. I think it was developed around the 1930s. And what an EEG does is it, it records activity on the cortex of our brain. So the cortex of our brain is about three to six millimeters thick, and it's obviously filled with, with billions of neurons. When groups of neurons are, are activated, they give off an electrical signal, and the electrodes that we put on the surface of the scalp record that activity. So we can look at any moment in time and identify roughly um, where the brain being kind of activated or deactivated to some extent. It's an important tool. One of the ways that we've used it is to look at, at what happens when um, someone looks at a face. And there's a lot of work out there looking at face perception. Face perception is a really important social tool. 
right? So when you're interacting with someone uh, and and you know they you know you say something and they knit their brow, you're looking at that face and that facial cue, and you're saying, oh, I must have confused the person. Let me clarify. Or, or oh, geez, it sounds like you didn't like what I just said. What, what did I, you know, did I offend you? Or someone smiling, and you're, you know, we, we make inferences about what people are thinking based on their face. Um, so it's a really important tool. What, what we, what's pretty well characterized is that when we look at a face, um, certain areas in our brain become activated. Um, and there's a, a particular area, fusiform gyrus. So this is in the in the temporal lobes, the sides of your brain. Um, and it's a it's a structure about the size of a finger. Um, and when if I were to show you a picture, your fusiform gyrus would would indicate activity. If I showed you a face, rather a picture of a face. You're listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. Support the show by visiting www.autismexplained.org and donating today. So if you were doing an EEG test on someone and you showed them a picture on your test, you would basically, it would look like um, like a heart monitor where you'd see a blip going up, right? That's right. And this, and this blip actually, and strangely enough, goes down. <laughs> so... So the, the, what happens when you look at a face, when a typical social person looks at a face, you see a, a, a decrease, a sharp decrease in the cortical activity in the temporal lobe at, at 100, that sounds so specific, it's crazy, but it's true, at about 170 milliseconds. So 100 milliseconds is the speed of an eye blink. Okay, so that's a me- unit of measure that EEG uses, and what you're saying is... Uh multiple people, not just your own group, have shown very consistently that when you look at a face, you see this one specific pattern, right? That's correct. It's a, it's a very well-studied, well-characterized um, event in, in our brains. When, when a human looks at a face, we, we see this N170. Um, you, you don't see the N170, or you see if you see it, it's much less pronounced in people with autism. So the idea is that some of the social deficits that are that are involved or that you see in autism are the result of a lack of activity in the part of our brain that generally processes faces. Okay, so this is one of the big findings. Right, and that was work you guys did a while ago. Now I have a question, and this is sort of naive being not a neuroimaging person, but uh, that's a correlation you guys are finding, right? Someone with a diagnosis of autism has – now you can't say for sure that it's not – it. I mean, how how do you know that basically another part of the brain that was supposed to feed information to that part of the brain wasn't working? How do you know the kid doesn't have uh, as good of eyesight, basically? Or how do you, so basically, how can you say for sure that it is this particular area that is seems to be not functioning like normal, as opposed to some other more global function that then feeds to that area? For one, we certainly rule out and we, we can take measurements about their vision. So certainly we want to make sure that they have normal vision and normal color vision. Um, but you're right. Actually, that's, that's one of the challenges in some kinds of neuroimaging techniques. The brain, if nothing else, is, is highly interconnected, right? I mean, there are, there are neurons that connect one part of the brain to the other part of the brain. That's the way the, the brain works. These connections are really important. And so you're absolutely right that, that anytime you see some activity in the brain, it's going through a process. 
you often see in imaging studies a structure called the thalamus is activated almost when anyone's doing anything because the thalamus is kind of seen as the, the brain switchboard. You know, all roads lead through the thalamus and, and then they get then they get kind of allocated to different parts of the brain. So you're absolutely right. And and for that reason it's important to not rely on a single research method, but we can look at other methods. In fact, a colleague of mine here, uh, Dr. Andrew Michael, is kind of an expert in looking at parts and components of the brain that are simultaneously activated. And there are neuroimaging techniques that are specifically geared toward understanding pathways. So not just the activation level in a particular isolated part of the brain, but really the the pathways that are connected, um, because all of these processes are complicated. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's a it's a really good question, and it's something that we always need to be mindful of when we're using these kinds of techniques. Yeah. So it's uh, like anything, I guess, in life. It's never as straightforward as you initially would uh, maybe hope it to be. That's right. I'd, I'd love it to be as simple as I'm saying, but it's certainly a lot more complicated. So similarly, um, you've done sort of changing gears here. You've, you've done, well, you've done a lot of work sort of uh, defining clinically re- repetitive behaviors. You've done a lot of work neuroimaging those kids. Uh, more recently, in in part of bigger collaborations there at Geisinger, you've done a lot of really interesting work looking at uh, genetics of not just autism, sort of neurodevelopmental disorders or just even brain development in general and trying to find out sort of where is this continuum? And in particular, you guys came out with a very interesting paper in Lancet Neurology last year um, that got a lot of press. And so I was wondering maybe if you could just discuss briefly sort of what was the impetus of sort of that line of research and kind of walk us through some of your basic findings and where you guys see this going. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is this is really the most exciting thing for me that, that we've got going here uh, at the center. So, so as I mentioned, Dr. Ledbetter has a great background in genetics, and one of the main thrusts of the of the uh, mission here at the Autism Developmental Medicine Institute is a genetics first approach. And what we mean by that is that it's very likely that many of these cases of autism, when you see a study where there's 50 children with autism or 100 children with autism, autism, even though we're talking about it like it is, it is not a single global entity, right? There are many, many different forms of autism. There's a huge range of severity. There are uh, people with autism that have a really unique cognitive or developmental profile, you know, certain strengths and weaknesses. There's a saying that, you know, if you've seen, you know, one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. The studies that have a hundred children in them, you may have a hundred different forms of autism. So when you see even like drug trial studies that say, oh, geez, only, you know, 20% of the population responded positively to this or that medication, that's not a surprise. Right. It's I think about it this way. Imagine, you know, if you have a a cough, um, there could be that's the symptom. So it's like it's like having a repetitive behavior. So you've got a chronic cough and your cough could be because you're a smoker. It could be because uh, you have emphysema. It could be because you've got allergies. You could have a cold or the flu. You could simply have a dry throat. You could have a tick disorder that makes you cough. 
there is no reason why all of those versions of a of a cough would be would respond the same way to the same treatment right those are those are radically different conditions but the symptom that we see is the same there's a cough but there is no way if you had emphysema we would treat that the same way as if you had dry mouth or, or as if you had you know throat cancer i mean this is we would we would treat these very differently based on our understanding of the cause and what we're finding when you look at a group of children who come into a clinic like ours who have who present with symptoms like autism when you do genetic testing you find that about 40% of them have a have a known uh change in their genome a known what we would call copy number variation that just means the addition or deletion of of certain amount of genetic material it can be a whole chromosome we've got 46 chromosomes it could be an extra it could be missing one but it could also be micro deletions and micro duplications those are really small small uh, bits of of dna that are changed the code is written a little bit differently it's in a very limited place but it can have sometimes benign effects and sometimes catastrophic effects and so what you're saying is if you every child who walks in your guys clinic with uh, a diagnosis of autism 40% of them you'll find some change even though it may or may not be very significant or very large but you'll be able to find something that's different um from sort of the reference normal control right that, that's correct that's correct and there have been many studies there's a, a wonderful population study that was done in in Iceland and um they you know they basically uh, genetically screened 100,000 people who find you actually find that a lot of these these CNVs are in all of us you know it's in the general population but certain ones present a high risk for disorders like schizophrenia and certainly like autism i didn't mean to change gears by talking about schizophrenia but that's actually one of the things that we're finding out is that some copy number variations, someone might develop schizophrenia. So even with the same copy number variation, we could have two people with the exact same copy number variation, and one of them can have a diagnosis of autism, the other could have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. A third could have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Could a fourth be normal? Yes, yes. Although it's it's a really it's another kind of complicated question. So you could certainly have someone with that same copy number variation who never had a diagnosis. But what we're finding again is that even for that person, they might not be severe enough to warrant a clinical diagnosis. But when you use tools that are sensitive enough, you find that some of those people might actually have some features of autism or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So it gets back to what we were talking. It's a, there's a huge spectrum, basically. Exactly. And it could be anything from having something that you wouldn't pick up on one of your uh, screening tests to something that's very obvious and, and maybe the person would clearly have schizophrenia or something kind of in between. That's right. That's right. So one of the things we're, we're finding, we're just with some colleagues of ours at Columbia and at Harvard, that we've uh, recently published a paper that shows that for people who have a, a deletion called 16P11, so this is on the 16th chromosome, 16P11.2, people with this copy number variation are at high risk for autism. 
But the, the conundrum has always been, well, how come, why isn't it that all the people with this uh, deletion, why don't they all have autism? And what we're finding is that, just as I was saying before, there is a range, all right? And so some people might be profoundly affected by it and have severe forms of autism. Some might have milder forms, and some might appear to be unaffected. But what we're finding out is that unaffected is relative. In other words, let's if we're thinking about IQ, so you know, let's say, I'm picking on you again, I guess. <laughs> let's say you have an IQ of... Uh, 135. Okay, and you have, no, I'm sure it's at least that. And and you have a child who has an IQ of 90. One of the things we would do clinically is is give the child a test. And, all right, an IQ of 90, and we'd say, you know what, 90 is in the normal range. But you might say, but wait a minute, my wife and I both have IQs of 135. That's that's a 45 point difference from where we are. And we know that there's a high rate of heritability with things like cognitive abilities to some degree. So even though your offspring might not reach the threshold for an intellectual disability, it would be difficult for you to say, my child is completely unaffected by having the 16P11.2 deletion syndrome, because clearly it cost them a whole lot of IQ points. So in some ways what you're saying is it might be better to sort of develop a model that is what is normal for the, for the child isn't necessarily based on population averages, but closer based on their, their family's averages or something like that. Exactly, exactly the point. That's, that's what we think, that when, you're, when you do testing, you should also be testing, if you can, the parents. You should be testing the non-carrier sibling. You really want to get a detailed picture of the child's family background, of, of what, what would you have expected of this child to turn out like, given what we know about, about the heritability of certain traits, including cognitive ability, social behavior, language, even height. So there, there are some, there's some neat work out there. There's a, a disorder called Turner syndrome. And Turner syndrome is, is always in females. So females on the 23rd pair have two X chromosomes. Males have an X and a Y. So Turner's is the deletion of an entire X chromosome. So they've got one X, but they're missing the other chromosome. And one of the features of this disorder is is short stature, okay? Um, Now, what we found is that clearly when you compare the height of of a girl with Turner syndrome to the parent's height, even when she's an adult, you're, you're going to see that this Turner syndrome female is going to be shorter than the parents are. And, and height is also a highly heritable trait. Okay. And so you're going to see that there might be a, you know, strong, significant difference. What we're finding though is that if you look at groups of people, the offspring's height is still correlated with the parent's height. Hmm. In other words, uh, what I say, and I don't mean to be too cheeky here, if Shaquille O'Neal, who stands seven feet four, had a daughter with Turner syndrome, she'd probably be five feet nine, which happens to be my height. Right. So it's all relative to your to your background, right? Is what you're getting at. Exactly. You wouldn't say. I think Shaquille O'Neal actually has a very short wife, um, so I don't know how that would average. Ah, well, that's that would complicate the issue. That would complicate the issue, right? Because right. actually, what we look at is biparental mean. 
is the is the is the uh, you know the arithmetic average between the mother's and the father's type or abilities or language or whatever. So so you're right. That would complicate the the issue. And so uh, where you're going with this is is are you saying so we're talking about you know height or maybe a clinical repetitive behaviors, but are, are you, what you're saying is that you should, what this could eventually be expanded to is sort of looking at the genome and that should be compared to the parent's average kind of? That's absolutely right. That's correct. That's, that's the approach that we're taking here is to, when you're talking about the degree of impairment or more specifically and more importantly, um, imagine if the parents just found out that they gave birth to a child with this, with one of these copy number variations. Their first question is going to be, what does the future look like for my son or daughter? What is their likely outcome? What are they going to be like as a 15-year-old and a 25-year-old and a 45-year-old? And what we're starting to get the sense of is that depending on the, on the CNV that we're looking at, we can, we can give the parents a more informed piece of information about the likely outcome of their child based on the family background of the people who are unaffected and non-carriers of this CNV. Hmm. So, so again, it's, it partly is, uh, should inform genetic counselors or neurodevelopmental pediatricians um, when they sit down and try to talk to the parents about what, you know, what's the likely outcome. We can, we can within some band of error, we can probably give them more information or more accurate information about what the future looks like if we know more about the family background. I see. That's fascinating. So I sort of along those lines and, and kind of where do you, do you think the future of this is going, I can kind of see all this work kind of going in two very different ways, and I'm curious to know what you think will kind of happen, and, I, and clearly it's speculative, but one thing that you're saying is like what we could find out is everything's a continuum and there's there's sort of normal development, there's autism, there's other things, and then basically everything will eventually get lumped together as somewhere on a continuum of normal. Or what we could do is basically as sequencing technology gets better, every child could be found to have an, you know a very specific CNV, and that could be very relative to their parent CNV, and then we could say maybe that's an, that we're calling that autism. 2.3.5, like a very unique uh, subset of autism. And so I guess what I'm saying is wh where do you see this going? Do you see it as going more towards a sort of co global comprehensive diagnosis of neurodevelopmental disorders, or do you see it going towards each child sort of having their own very uh, specific clinical phenotype? We largely are in, in support of the latter of those, which is an individualized treatment approach not treating everyone with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder as though they're the same as the child who came into the clinic a week ago or who will next week. We're recognizing that these kids, while they might have been called the same thing, are in fact very, very different. They're all unique. They all come from unique genetic and genomic backgrounds. They come from unique family backgrounds. And so we see this uh, genetics first approach as, yeah, probably uh, ideally when, when costs become feasible is to do whole genome sequencing of everyone who comes into the clinic so that we can start there. And that will give us a sense of whether, for example, the child's condition is inherited or whether it's what's called a de novo mutation, meaning the parents did not, quote, hand it down, but the child, uh, you know, during very, very early stages of development had this deletion or this duplication. But 
what that means, knowing that, means that you can come up with an individualized treatment approach for that particular child. And and that's where we see the future going in this. And it's potentially right around the corner. Fascinating. So basically reversing what's what's traditionally been done. So traditionally a child would come in, be worked up clinically, basically their behavioral manifestations of autism, and then if it was indicated, do some sort of genetic testing. And what you're saying is and when there's a concern, you right away would want to do some sort of genetic testing so that from from the beginning they're being that's exactly right treated in a unique individualized way um you know i think parents who've gone through this know one of the things that happens is uh in some circumstances well we're going to try this medication because the medication worked with the kid 2 weeks ago well my child's not that kid oh okay well okay so the medication made it worse well let's try this let's try that it's a it's a real crapshoot. I mean, it's just a, a, there's a lot of trial and error. And if you know the, the, the genomics of the family and of the individual, you can make more targeted estimates of what is going to be a fruitful pathway toward treatment and what's going to be a less fruitful one. And I think that that's, that's kind of the essence of this really is, is to promote an individualized approach to, to diagnosis and treatment that starts with a genetics approach. Well, it's, fasc- it's fascinating work. It's fascinating to sort of see how your own work has kind of seen the whole uh, gamut, starting with how do we define what is just normal, then how can we look at sort of neuroimaging, and now you're even moving into genetics. And uh, I find that to be very uh, sort of also fascinating for our listeners, uh, uh, sort of a, as a research trajectory for you. There's not many people who have kind of spanned so many different fields in such a short career. Well, it's it's nice of you to say, and I, I the one key to all of that is having great collaborators. <laughs> we can't be an expert in everything, and so I've been able to use the tools of neuroimaging and now genetics and genomics. It's really sort of standing on the shoulders of my colleagues who are who really are experts in all of these areas. But it's really about collaboration, and uh, the Autism and Developmental Medicine Institute here. That that's really its its cornerstone. That's its features. That we have there's a neurodevelopmental pediatrician who's literally right across the hall from me. Uh, there's a genetic counselor who is next door to me. There's a speech and language therapist who's down the hall. There's a radiologist who's downstairs. I mean, we're all here working on the same issues and same problems um, and drawing on each other's expertise. So I count myself that's really excellent. fortunate. Yeah. All right. Well, we're about out of time. What we like to do sort of at the end to wrap things up is play a game uh, sort of we call rapid fire. So what I'm going to do is say a word or two, and then I want you to tell me what the first thing that pops in your mind is, one or two word association. All right. So, for instance, if I was going to say uh, yellow, you say crayon. Okay. All right. The microbiome and autism. Oh, boy. This is just uh, the hottest stuff, most recent stuff. All I can say, it's it's hot right now. That's a bad answer. All right. Genetic testing for autism in 2014. Uh, just a couple of years from being really affordable and from being, we hope, universal. Genetic testing for autism in 2024. Far and away, we'll be there, and it'll be it'll be I think the key to understanding 
not just autism, but all sorts of disease entities, neurodevelopmental disorders, physical disorders. It's going to be the key to personalized, individualized treatment. Autism funding. Funding overall uh, is, is tight. Autism funding is is pretty good. I think the key is going to be moving from just, I don't want to say just autism funding, recognizing that autism is part of a broad spectrum of neurodevelopmental disorders. And we may very well learn a lot about autism by increasing funding in other kinds of neurodevelopmental disorders that have genetic, genomic origins. All right. Uh, what about Asperger's syndrome? Recently deleted as a clinical entity from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Volume 5 or, or Edition 5, uh, but a quintessential example of that really brought the concept of the spectrum of autism to the fore. So in that case, was has been an important part in the history of understanding autism. Epigenetics. Also a big area. It's a lot more complex than people think. It's not just uh, you know, it's how the environment actually exerts on, on changes in in genomics. But I guess for right now, genetics and genomics is a is a is a finite entity, and I'd like to get to studying those problems first. I suppose. All right, one thing at a time, right? Yeah. All right, thank you so much for your time, Dr. David Evans, Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Bucknell University in Lewisburg, PA. He's also the Director of the Developmental Neuropsychology Lab at the Geisner Bucknell Autism and Developmental Medicine Institute. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been a fascinating discussion. It's my pleasure. I've enjoyed the time talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Explained podcast with Dr. Mark. This has been a production of Autism Explained Incorporated. All views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not represent Autism Explained Incorporated or its employees. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Always consult with your physician. Follow us on Twitter at autism explained and visit our website for more shows and other material at www.autismexplained.org